God bless you, everyone. My name is David Ewan, and I head up the Bravehearted Ministry at the Resurrection Center located here at 1060 Worcester Street in Springfield, Massachusetts. We're located in the Indian Orchard area of Springfield. Uh, I am here with Pastors Jose and Pastor Millie Martinez. And uh, tonight, it's the Bravehearted Men's Ministry. So this is what we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to be talking about your identity as your God-given purpose. You know how to find us. We are located at TRC413 on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. You can subscribe to us on YouTube at ResCent Spring. We're everywhere. We're easy to find. Of course, our website is resurrectionspringfield.org. Tonight's topic, your identity is your God-given purpose. And before we went on uh, streaming tonight, I was telling those that were here that the testimony that I'm about to share is something that occurred almost 40 years ago. It was a long time ago. Um, and I had mentioned that there were other times that I talked about how I nearly had accidental suicide. I've talked about that in the past here. Um, I don't have anything to hide. Just look at my last album. You'll get all the stuff. Uh, but uh, tonight I'm going to be talking about something where I was really, really stupid. Okay? And the reason why I'm sharing this story with uh, the men here at the Bravehearted Men's Ministry is the difference between men and women. And this explains why we have a men's ministry. The difference between men and women is men are more black and white. And either they got their act together or they don't. So I'm going to tell you a time when I really didn't. So we're going to be talking about that tonight. So the, what happens is when we don't have our act together, we don't have our identity. And when we don't have an identity, we don't have a purpose. So that is why we're going to be talking about that your identity is your God-given purpose. So if you have an identity, then you have a purpose. If you don't have an identity, then you do not have a purpose. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. So in our conversation tonight, we'll talk about what it's like not to have an identity. And if you don't have an identity, you try to make up a purpose. Obviously, it's not led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is dead and dormant inside of you. Okay, and that was something that I had. So uh, I'm a little older now, a little bit wiser now. I'm 57, but I'm going to talk about a time when I was at the University of Massachusetts. So that was almost 40 years ago. Um, it was a different time. I had a dream. You know how, how guys have dreams? Imagine 18 years old or something like that, having a dream. If you've ever been at the University of Massachusetts, the people around here in Massachusetts knows the University of Massachusetts, and you know about that Tower Library. It's 26 stories high. And it was always very cool to see the parachute jumpers twirl and spiral around that. And I said, I'm going to do that. That was something I wanted to do, okay? But the way that I did it was not very bright. The timing that I did it wasn't very bright. What I should have focused on was the studies. I did eventually. And so that worked out, but we're going to talk about this. But let's get into our topic tonight. Do you know your God-given identity? And I ask that question because I know what it's like not to know. So I can ask that question. I know it now, 
I didn't know it before. So when I ask it, and I listen to what people say, then I can tell if they know what their identity is, and therefore they know what their purpose is. Now, it's very difficult if a person doesn't have an identity and they don't know their purpose. It's very difficult for me to explain that they need to achieve an identity to have a God-given purpose. Not a purpose, but a God-given purpose. It's not an easy thing to explain, but that's why we're here. That's the purpose of tonight. So I'm glad that you folks came in and that uh, you folks are watching online. So if you ask me this question back in college, and see, I went to the University of Massachusetts, or even at the start of my master's program, which was after two years, I started that two years after I finished my studies at the University of Massachusetts, I knew exactly who I was. See, young men always say that. They always know who they are. But I didn't. I thought I did. I told people I did. I even told my father that. And uh, he didn't like the kind of answers. The relationship with my father was very loving. I'll, let me say that first and foremost. It, it was very loving. But the reason why uh, I wanted to share this with you is I'm one of nine kids, okay? So um, by the time my twin sister and I were born, um, my father was already 41 years older than me. So I, I won't say, go as far as to say he's old enough to be my grandfather, but he's old enough to be a lot wiser. So I, I grew up with a lot of wisdom, which I chose not to receive. I won't say that I never received it, because for those who walk with me, know that I have a good memory. So eventually what he said decades ago, it caught up with me. So I, I have. So if I had to describe myself to you, I would have described myself as a type A perfectionist and, and a first-class warrior. I knew who I was, I thought I was tough, um, and I could make decisions. See, I pr prided myself for needing to have everything absolutely perfect and just to make everything perfect. And in some ways, I do that even today, but I do it with a different identity and a different purpose because it is God-driven. Okay, that's different. So I'm not knocking people who try to have perfection. I I've been a business owner for 26 years, and there has to be order in the way you run a business, okay? So I needed to have everything perfect, and when it wasn't, I worried a lot about it. And when you worry, what happens when you worry? It starts here, right? And then it sort of goes up here, and then it goes into your throat, and then it starts going in back here, and then you have physical ailments, and then you wonder, why are you seeing the nurse? Why are you seeing the doctor? And that's what it is, is because it's if you follow the spiritual realm, if you've studied the Bible, what you'll see is, is that the emotion which is dictated by Satan, the emotion that is dictated by Satan can cause physical ailments. And those physical ailments cause health issues. And that's how health issues are caused, okay? So I attribute myself of knowing all about myself and being self-aware. I thought I knew what was happening with me. I was taught self-aware is all that mattered because that was what I grew up with, okay? Um, it meant you were in control. So that's what it was all about, being in control. So 
the Holy Spirit was sleeping inside of me. And that's what happens. That's why the Holy Spirit is sometimes sad. You hear our prophetess, uh, Pastora Melly, talk about uh, the Holy Spirit is sad. Well, that's why, because it's been forced to sleep. Okay, it was locked up. And I didn't know. I had no connection with God at that time. I didn't know who I was in Christ. I didn't know who God was. I was totally lost. Okay? So that was me in the past. Tonight's agenda. I'm going to talk about eight things tonight. And I'm going to talk about a lot of things tonight. Number one, the testimony about identity and purpose in life. You kind of got a little bit of a flavor. See, I put a little salt to prepare you. Okay? And the other thing is let God control your wiggle direction and pull you up. I'm going to talk about wiggle. I'm going to talk about direction and pull you up. Okay? We're going to learn who Yahweh is. We're going to learn who Yahweh is. We're going to talk about the signs of unclear identity in life. We'll talk about what your God-given identity gives you. We'll talk about what it gives you. And then we'll talk about clues to your God-given identity. You thought that was easy. It's not. We'll talk about your God-given purpose in life that comes from that identity. And then we talk about how to let God be the pilot in your life to be in control. Okay? That's what we're going to talk about. See, your identity is your God-given purpose, as I said. When I was a kid at the university, I took risks thinking I was in control. I thought the more risks I take was a measurement of how in control I was. So I thought taking more risks and challenges, now that I wasn't living at home with mom and dad, I thought if I took risks and challenges and got through it, I didn't say succeed, just got through it, was an indication, a measurement of who I was as a man. That was a mistake. But that's what I thought. I didn't have anyone guiding me. So think about it. I assumed that I was in control. So I'm, I'm going to talk about uh, the University of Massachusetts Parachute Club. You know how people in, in high school and college, they join a sport or some sort of a club? Well, the sport I joined was the parachute team. And I will say they didn't have a lot of money, so I took risk. I should have saw the red flags. The equipment that was being used was very cheap. The parachutes that were being used was a T-10. That's a World War II-style canopy type of parachute. Looks like an umbrella. Um, a supersized Mary Poppins. Um, I was assuming that training would put me in control. I assumed that, hey, if I do the training, that'll be enough. I'll just focus on the training. So I joined the UMass parachute team. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell my parents. Because I knew they would say no. I knew that. Sort of inside. I said, oh, wait. I intentionally was being disobedient. I knew that if I told my parents, I'd be talked out of it. So I decided to withhold the information. So by withholding the information, I was disobedient. I took a moment to repeat that because not doing something is being disobedient. Doing something, in other cases, that's also disobedient. There are many definitions of what disobedience is. Okay? Um, I intentionally was disobedient, and I also learned later on 
that nothing can be kept a secret. Nothing can be kept a secret. Now think about it. I'm hiding my disobedience, but disobedience is never permanent because eventually you'll be caught. Okay? Now, the reason why I didn't know I was being disobedient doing anything wrong is, it, you know, I, I, in my own mind, I made a definition of what's right and what's wrong. See, and that was the mistake that I made. I made the determination of what's right and what's wrong. It's the Bible that tells us what's right and what's wrong, not my uh, determination. I thought, well, I didn't rob a store. I didn't smoke drugs. So I'm a good boy. I'm just not telling my parents. But that's not so bad. That's what I thought. Okay? So there was about two weeks of ground training. And I did this on Saturdays. Saturdays and Sundays is, is when the training was done. And um, the, the way it works, just to show you the picture, what, what's supposed to ha we do the ground training, but what it happens in the air, um, it's a, it looks like a Cessna Skyhawk. And what a Cessna Skyhawk looks like is the wing is on the top of the aircraft, not the bottom. It's on the top of the aircraft. And the, the landing gear is fixed. It does not retract. It's a smaller aircraft. And uh, from the landing gear up to the wings are these struts that hold up the wing. And on the side of the aircraft, on the, the right-hand side, there's this door that goes up like this. Okay, it goes up and goes snug up against the wing. And what you're supposed to do is, let's say this is the propeller. That's the tail of the plane. The pilot is here. And then I'm here sitting with where a chair was to be, but and my legs are straight. And what you're supposed to do, and this is in training, is you're supposed to reach out with your hand and put it on the strut. You're leaning forward. You put your foot out, and then you swing yourself around. So what you have is you're on the side of the aircraft. You're under the wing. The plane is flying in the air. I'm standing on a platform above the, the wheel, the landing gear. And I'm holding the, the strut. And what's supposed to happen... Oh, by the way, I felt like it was James Bond. This is something James Bond would do. So, and that's why I loved it. It was so cool. It was a James Bond move. So what James Bond would do, and ergo myself, is you're supposed to step off. You're supposed to step off and go into a hard arch. Because the plane has slowed way down, almost to the point of stalling, at 95 miles per hour, along with the wind speed. So I have to go into a hard arch and be like a bullet, because as I step off the air aircraft, the plane has to go, but I have to slow myself down. So that's why I was like this. And then what happens, you start going down, and then you're trained, it was done repetitively, ripcord. You go like that. In the so that was the ground training. We were also told how to land is you have a bent knee, and as you land, the you have a momentum downward, and I'll explain what that momentum was, and then you have to roll. It's not like the modern ones. You see those rectangular parachutes where they just pull up and they just can land running. 
No, you're actually tumbling. That's part of the landing. And that's how it was in World War II. As I said, I'm using a T-10 parachute from World War uh, II. So what was happening? This is the reality of what happened. The first time we go up, I'm looking at the aircraft, and I feel that lump in my throat. I feel so nervous. But see, guys are guys, right? I got to be proud, right? I can't say, I don't want to go. No, no, I don't want to go. So I get on the aircraft, and who do you suppose went first? It just worked out that way. Figures, <laughs> I got to go first. So what happened was, um, we get on the air aircraft, and then the plane starts going up. Remember that nervousness I told you about, and it starts going up? So the plane is bouncing on the grass. That's the runway, the grass. And it's bouncing on the runway. And as it's going up, I'm about to just lose it because my stomach is very unsettled. We're not even off the ground yet. And not only that, I'm feeling sick to my stomach. We're not off the ground yet. And I'm thinking to myself, i got to jump out of this thing. <laughs> so... The ground training, I learned that when we prepare, it's not the same as reality. We had a great ground training, but the sky is not the same. Stepping off the fixed landing gear while holding the wing strut under the, the overtop wings, the training is you're supposed to uh, step off. That's what we're told. But see, as you see, is I'm standing on the ground. Let's see if we can have a camera look at my feet and if it's pointing my feet. What happens is I can't slide my sneakers on the, when I'm doing the ground training. So you're supposed to, like, like do this. You're stepping off into space. But in ground training, you're not stepping off into space. So what I'm doing is I'm doing this. I'm doing, like, a little hop off the landing gear. That was the ground training. Instead of this, where I'm stepping off the aircraft. Um, so reality is not the same as the training, okay? And I told you about you go into a hard arch and then you deploy the chute. I told you before, the technology is this green T-10 parachute. The rate of descent is 22 to 24 feet per second. That's about 15 miles per hour after the chute is open. With toggles, you have a forward speed of five miles per hour. So this creates an angular direction because you're going down. Shinobi, you're geometry, right? So it's about 16 miles per hour plus wind speed. So you're moving 16 miles per hour. So you're going forward. You have to have direction. But in summary, you're falling out of the sky. Okay. The only reason why you need a parachute, there's only one reason why you need a parachute, just one reason. It's if you plan to use it twice. Other than that, the jump is all you need. You don't need a parachute if you're only going to do it once. Let me tell you again, it, the first time in flight, there are five in the aircraft, including the pilot and a trainer. There are three jumpers. I told you I was first. One supervisor and uh, a pilot. So... 
What you don't get in the ground training is when that door opens that I told you about, when that door opens, there's the buffeting wind. Nobody can hear anything. I don't know, am I supposed to? And I, I decided, I'm not jumping. I'm not, no, 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 I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go. And all the trainer's doing is he's tapping me on the shoulder. He's, I'm ready to go. He thinks I'm not going to say no. I can't tell him no. I don't want to go, but I got to go. But then I was looking at the other two jumpers, and I said, I got to look like a man in front of them. <sighs> so what I did was I'm sitting like this. Remember, the propeller's like this. The pilot's here. I'm sitting here. My feet are like this. <clears throat> He says, okay, 95 MPH, that's the signal that I'm ready to go out because the aircraft has slowed down to almost stalling at 95 miles per hour. I put my arm out, and it blows back in. <laughs> so I have to push out my hand, and then I'm trying to swing my legs over, and I do the James Bond move. And I really thought that the wind was going to blow my feet off the strut. And I'd be, I don't know if you saw the Gilligan's Island rerun where it's a storm and Gilligan's Island is holding a palm tree and his feet are like this, his body's like, you know, like this. Um, that's what I thought was going to happen, that I'd be like flapping in the wind, holding <laughs> on the plane and say, land this thing. So... Um, now, that's what was happening. The issue is this. The issue is this that I wanted to share with you. My self-approval was more important than anything else. What is self-approval? Let, let's, let's talk about self-approval. That's putting attention to yourself and not others. Do you want me to give you another word for that? It's idolatry. That's idolatry. But I didn't know that back then. I knew I was scared. <laughs> so um, my focus was one th on one thing, self-approval. So here's the reality. So as I'm standing out, I'm doing the James Bond thing. And remember I told you, and I'm showing you here, is, is that my feet are, is supposed to go like this. I'm supposed to, like, step off the aircraft and go into a hard arch. So I slow down. Here's what really happened. Remember, I told you, I'm losing my voice. Remember, I'll grab some water here. See, if I didn't have that, my wife would say, I gave you water. Um, so what happened was, I, I was so scared, all I could think of was the ground training. And remember, I told you I did the, the jump? To try because I you can't really step off into nothingness on the ground. So what happened was through nervousness, I really jumped, and when I jumped, my helmet hit the wing, and it knocked me back. Now, think of this: I step off. I'm not touching anything. My helmet hits the wing, and I go back. I will never forget the feeling in the picture as I'm falling this way, as I'm falling down this way, seeing the plane that I just 
fell out of going, and there it was going away. You know how they say if you're scared of heights, don't look down? Take it from me. <laughs> don't look up. <laughs> you don't want to see that plane that you jumped out of. <laughs> there was no hard arch. I didn't do this. Because why would I do this? Because now I was on my back. So I was going like this. I was going like a frisbee. That's where I was going. I had no control. Uh, and uh, I had uh, the motion. Not only was I going like a frisbee, but I was spinning because there was nothing holding me in place. What you're supposed to do is after you open up the, open the ripcord, you're supposed to focus your eyes straight ahead like a mountaintop. I had nothing to focus on. And remember I said my stomach wasn't feeling well? I didn't lose anything, but I still felt woozy while it was tumbling. And it was like an astronaut tumbling in, into space, like you see in a science fiction movie. The inner ear has something called the vestibular system for balance. The shift in fluid causes dizziness. What does that dizziness cause? Blacking out. I was out of control. I was flying like a frisbee. I was tumbling. My inner ear was out. My stomach was out. I was nearly blacking out. Who's going to pull the ripcord? I was literally falling out of the sky. I was literally falling out of the sky. As I'm tumbling, the buffeting of the wind was going through my ears. That confused me even more. No sight, no sound, no orientation, no clarity, thought, total fear. As I said before, this was 40 years ago. Almost 40, not 40 years ago, almost 40 years ago. To this very day, I have not had fear like that ever since. Okay? So let's talk about the status of what happens. Let's talk about the dead weight. On average, it takes one second, one second to fall 200 feet. You will fall 44.1 meters in three seconds. After three more seconds, you have fallen 122 meters. The maximum speed of a skydiver, when they're like this, you've seen the skydivers, they're like stomach down and they're, they're bracing, they're trying to slow down, just like I was supposed to when I stepped off the plane going a hard arch. That's why you see skydivers like this, is because they're slowing themselves down. A skydiver's uh, slowing down reaches a maximum speed of about 118 miles per hour. That's controlled. I was not in control. I was going, um, when you minimize drag in your streamline, like I was a Frisbee, the rate of descent going down is 310 miles per hour. So you ask. You ask. Just imagine yourself asking, so, Dave, how's your day going? How's your day go going? It's going about 310 miles per hour. That's how it's going. <laughs> so, and what will be the last thing in your mind? Probably my feet. So I can imagine the little birdie, the little birdie says, that dear boy, that dear boy, he should flap his wings. Lord, Lord, help that poor boy. Let him flap his wings. Boom. I don't know what it was. It was God. You, you reach for the, the ripcord and let the wind do the rest. And the ripcord came out, 
the parachute's deployed. And then the birdie says, now fly, fly, see, like this. <laughs> so what happened, I was fully recovered at that point. I was way off course because I was thrown like a frisbee. What you're supposed to do is you have a target to land, and there's a sand pile that, that you're directed to land, and there's people on the ground with these big arrows telling you where to pull so that you can go. Now, remember, as I said, if you're going uh, 15 miles per hour down, 5 miles per hour forward, you're going about 16 miles per hour at an angle going down. Um, so that's pretty fast if you don't know where you're going. I know it's only 16 miles per hour, but see, driving a car is two-dimensional. So I can do 16 miles per hour on the road. Try 16 miles per hour three-dimensional. Okay, that's different. So that, and I was confused, and I'm trying to do three, three-dimensional navigation. You, you think that parachute jumping is, is easy, just jump out of the plane. There's navigation. Um, so I was going nearly 16 miles per hour plus wind speed to dangerous trees and rivers. Well, at least it's better than the 310 miles per hour, but, and now I have limited control. What happened was, I was so focused on navigating is I made it to the sand pile. Most people land outside the sand pile, and I landed on the sand pile, and it's a soft landing. They try to get the new guys like me to land on the sand pile. When I landed on the sand pile, my, I got, went this deep. I went about a foot deep into the sand, so it was a soft landing. Then I stood up and forgot there was a 40-pound pack on my back, and I went, whoop, and I landed on my back. So I made it. Now, talk about the confidence. Remember I told you about red flags? See, God tries to give you red flags, okay? Uh, the second time, the plane was being repaired. Uh, if you like Legos, you'll like this, because that's what the airplane looked like. It was taken apart uh, and being maintained, and it looked like uh, something you'd see in a Rector set or Legos. It's kind of like when you go to those small little town carnivals and they use duct tape to put the roller coaster together and say, this should work. That's how this plane was put together. Okay, so on that day, it was ground training. So the second time, that was only ground uh, training. The third time, I did not land in the sand pile. Um, where I landed was on grass, but I was used to the sand pile. So it was a hard landing. And I remember I, I had my knees bent, so I didn't damage my knees, and my butt hit my heels. I went, like, all the way down, and the momentum, the energy of the movement, the kinetic energy had to go somewhere. So I remember slamming on my side. Had a headache for the rest of the day. I had a concussion. So I was injured. I was injured. That was the, the third time going there, but the second jump. The fourth time... I braced for impact, I rolled, and it was a landing that worked. So I finally got it. So here's what's happening. It was time for me to let my father know that I was a man. I thought, see, young boys, we're, we're stupid, right? I thought that if I told my father that I did this, he would be proud of me. And the reason why is my father flew a four-engine bomber, a Liberator B-24, in World War II. So he knows about this equipment. 
So that's why the T-10 parachute is a big deal. So um, I called, and he was so angry. It caught me off guard. It was, it, I, I thought he'd be proud of me. Um, I didn't know why he was angry at me, but one of the things he told me is, uh, the price of packing a parachute when you have someone else do it, I wasn't certified for that, was at that time $18. That's another red flag. You're, you're paying the price of a happy meal for a person to pack your parachute that you're going to jump out of a plane with. And so, my father told me, how much was it? 18 bucks every time I jump. He said, the price of a round-trip Peter Pan bus to go from the university to Boston uh, and to visit with my mom and dad was $17.50. See, I could be with family and make 50 cents, okay? I put so much focus. Think of this. Take a moment to think of this. I put so much focus on falling out of planes that I fell out of my purpose. I fell out of focus. So I did more than just falling out of a plane. Um, my father was so angry when he found out. And later he told me he knows exactly what is called the splat factor. Okay. So my father asked me a question. What do you call a parachute jump, jumping when the parachute doesn't work? The answer is jumping to a conclusion. And it's the final conclusion. I remember he saying that. No worries. My purpose came fast. My father never had to tell me anything twice. I went back to my studies in mathematics and computer science and did engineering work uh, after that. But while I was jumping, I didn't know my purpose in life. You see, in Jeremiah 29.11, which I didn't read the Bible when I was at the university, drove by a lot of churches but didn't know anything about the Bible. Not only did I not know it, there was a reason why I didn't know anything about the Bible. I didn't have one. Um, I didn't know what the numbers meant, you know, in the Bible. said that's all, that's kind of confusing. I, I, I was a math major, and I didn't know what the numbers were, you know, the chapters and verses. Uh, but in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Did you hear that? Plans to give you hope in a future. Not a plane, a plan. Not an airplane, but a plan. Um, so the message is to let God be the pilot. Roll in an airplane is when you wiggle. Yaw is when you turn. Pitch is when you go up and down. Let God control your wiggle. Let God set your direction. Let God pull you up if you go down. Let God control you. Let God be the pilot. So your identity is your God-given purpose. That's our message today. I didn't know there were plans for me. I didn't know the plans were to prosper me and not to harm me. I didn't know that the plans for me gave me hope in the future. I was making the decisions myself. And that's what happens with men. And that's why we're talking about this at the Bravehearted Men's Ministry is, is because we think in terms of black and right, right and wrong, on or off. And, and we think that we need to make a choice and stick with it, and, and that's our decision. But we have fallen out of the understanding that we need to be guided. So I try to be prosperous myself. I try to protect myself. How do you protect yourself when you fall out of a plane that's put together with duct tape? Um, I thought only I could give myself a hope. I thought if I knew what my future was, if I 
planned what my future was than I had my future. See, I didn't know God. I didn't know I had a Father God for love and guidance. He had my destiny, but I never asked. I didn't know to ask. I thought danger and excitement was the definition of purpose. Maybe that was my ignorance. Maybe it was my young age. Maybe it was just me being stupid. So that's why I jumped out of a plane. The book of Exodus was the first biblical usage of the name Yahweh. And we can see at the end of the passage that it was the name by which God has chosen to be remembered throughout all generations. Yahweh is the most well-known name for God in the Old Testament. That's where it's starting. The name Yahweh shows God's covenant covenant lordship over Israel. And that's why here at the Resurrection Center, we pray for Israel in Jerusalem. The Lord revealed this name to Moses at the burning bush in the process of calling him to be his agent for liberation of the Israelites from Egyptian uh, slavery. Uh, And that's an episode recorded in today's passages in the Old Testament. God was speaking to Moses through the burning bush and giving him the mission to end all missions freeing the Israelite people from Egyptian captivity. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, and this is in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So what is Yahweh? Yahweh is the self-existent, eternal God. Yahweh is a relational God. What do I mean? By a relational God. We have a relationship with God. Yahweh is with us. Yahweh is the unchanging God. You know what you're going to get. Yahweh is more holy than any of us. Yahweh keeps his covenant with us. That means his promises stay with us. Yahweh is full of mystery, but worth seeking. So picture this at the burning bush. God says, I am Yahweh. And Moses says, no way, Yahweh. See, God was telling us. Some signs you may have an unclear sense of identity are, and and compare this to what I had just talked about when I was at the UMass Parachute Club. I had a lack of personal confidence. What happens when you have a lack of uh, self-personal confidence? You lack self-worth. You have difficulty accepting both your strengths and your limitations. That means you don't know your identity. You're being affected by fears, doubts, rejection, or envy. So the emotions around you confuse you. Other people are setting your direction because you're unable to set your own direction. You feel out of place or unfulfilled. So the question you have to ask yourself, what lies are you allowing to steal away your God-given identity? I'll ask that question again. What lies are you allowing to steal away from your God-given identity? That is why it's so important to know your God-given identity. It not only affects what you believe about yourself, but it also influences the way you live your life. 
Let's talk about the power of knowing your God-given identity. See, you got to watch out for those phrases like, you're not good enough. You're not qualified. You'll never be accepted. You can't change. That's just how you are. See, that type of ear message that you get, that's what turns you away from God. So knowing your God-given identity gives you confidence, self-esteem, and awareness. Knowing who you are and whose you are changes everything. If you knew that you were fearfully and wonderfully made, and that's in Psalms 139.14, that would change the way you view yourself. If you knew that your body was a temple, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, maybe that would influence how you would treat it. What if you were aware that you were royalty, and that's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9? Would you then start boldly reigning with God? What would happen, and what would you do if you knew that your identity was based on how God views you? See, noting, knowing your God-given identity gives you validation and increases your faith. When you know that God validates you, you're no longer worried about performance like I was at UMass at the Parachute Club. You know that you're already equipped to do what God is calling you to do. And that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. And you have faith that he will do the work through you. Gone are the days about what other people think of you or even what you think of yourself. It doesn't matter. It's what God thinks of you. Your faith and hopes are no longer based on yourself or others, but God. It's that light you've got to be looking at. See, knowing your God-given identity puts you in a better position to understand your purpose. Until you know who and whose you are, you're going to have a hard time fully understanding why God created you. You're going to have a hard time understanding your purpose. Your identity and your purpose go hand in hand. Your identity consists of your gifts, your talents, education, passions, upbringing, and so much more. And all of that God gave you. All of these factors serve as supporting roles and tools in your purpose. Knowing your God-given identity helps you better understand how they all fit together and what role they will play in your purpose and assignment. Here are nine clues Nine clues. We're going to talk about nine clues to your God-given identity. Here are the nine clues to help you explore who you are uniquely in God. It, uh, it should identify the struggles that you have and how you can overcome them. I encourage you to take some time to journal or pray, mostly pray about the points that particularly relate to you. The first one that I'll talk to you about is your family identity. And I'll read in John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's in John chapter 1, verse 12. Before you can fully comprehend your personal identity, you need to grasp who you are in God's household. You are royalty. You carry the family DNA and attributes. You are beloved, chosen. You are the father, son, or daughter. You are righteous in Christ. What does God's word say about who you are and as you are a son of God? Think about that. Number two, it's the seasons of fulfillment. Think of that, seasons of fulfillment. Can you look back on your life and recognize times and seasons in which you felt the most fulfilled and the most alive? This is not about relationships. This is about settings. See, God works through us into certain relationships, but God also puts us into certain settings, the times of happiness. What were you doing during these times? And most importantly, what aspects of your persona and passion were emerging and being revealed? 
this persona and this passion, that's God. That's the manifestation from God. The third one I'll talk about is the prophetic insights related to you as a person. What scriptures has God used to speak to you personally about your life? When you're reading the Bible, what prophetic descriptions about who you are have resonated with you? See, what affects me will affect someone else differently. A scripture that I'm attached to, like my favorite scripture, someone asked me, hey, Dave, what's your favorite scripture? Jeremiah 29, 11. But for someone else, it'll be another scripture, okay? We're not considering here promises, but what you will do or what, you, uh, what God will do for you. The key is what words and names describe you as a person. How does God see you? Number four, gifts of people who have believed in you. We've talked about settings. Let's go back to people. There are people who have believed in you. Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. Throughout your life's journey, God has brought significant people across your paths. These are the ones who have believed in you. These people have the gifts from God to nourish your identity and help release your potential. I told you before, I'm one of nine children. And I remember when I was 12 years old, uh, my mother and I, we were walking, we were in Boston, we were at Quincy Market, and my mother said that I would be a, she said out of all of her children, she'd be, I laughed at her. Well, I've been in business 26 years, and she was right. So she's a person who prayed for me. She knew where I would be. She was a gift to me, of course. So think of who they were and what was the best in you that they brought out. What did they see in you? Think of the times you doubted yourself, but other people did not. The next one I'll talk about is the trials. When I say trials, I mean the difficult times that have brought out the best in you. Sometimes people go through the most difficult things, and great things come out of it. We all know about Captain Sullenberger and the miracle on the Hudson. Okay, that was a difficult time. I bring that up because I work with airline pilots around the world. I train them in global communication. And so we talk about those things that, you know, when you've got 600 passengers behind you on Arab Emirates or 400 if you're on a 777, you have 400 souls behind you. And there are things that happen in the cockpit that those people in the back can't know. But you have to go through a difficulty and bring the best out of you. So what tests have you undergone that ultimately brought out something good or strong in you? Can you identify the positive attribute that manifested your life? How would you describe it? Then as you describe it, think that God was involved. The next one, number six. Changing identity. In Isaiah 62.4, the scripture says, Isaiah 62.4, no longer will they call you deserted or name you land desolate, but they will uh, be called Hephzibah and your land Bula. See, Moses killed a man and fled Egypt. His identity was to be a deliverer, but at that time he was labeled a murderer. The enemy hates our identity and the image of God upon us and wants to distort and destroy it. One of the ways he does this is through engineering events that damage our identity and self-worth. 
See, personal failure, circumstances or mistakes can injure our sense of identity. I'm not good enough. I'm not that kind of person, for example. And so can the abuse and rejection of others affect how you see yourself? If this has taken place in your life, God's plan is to restore your true identity. So what marked out label has been put on you? What event or person has inflicted you? Now this is the opposite. Now think about the opposite of this. This is how God truly sees you. It's in the positive. And that brings me to the next one, number seven, a God-given name. Isaiah 62.2 says, The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. And again, that's in Isaiah 62.2. In the scripture, a given name was frequently synonymous with identity. In some cases, God renamed a person as a sign for their identity and destiny. For example, Jesus renamed Simon Peter, meaning rock. And that's in John 1.42. Sometimes today, parents provoke their children with a prophetic name that speaks of their identity, but this is not always uh, the case. Uh, and number eight, who are you when you're fearless? When you're not afraid of something, when you're able to overcome adversity, what kind of person has God made you to be? If fear and doubts were not an issue, who would you be? What attributes would be displayed in your life? What is the best version of you, not other people's version of what you should be, but what is God's version of you? And number nine, what is your unique sense of passion and purpose? Your interest in the things that you are passionate about are an important part of who you are. You may even have a sense of destiny or call of God. This is also a clue to your identity. So your identity is like a crystal that when held to the light reflects many facets and colors. You do not have to come up with a single name, although you may have one that stands out and sums up all other attributes. Okay? So the nine clues to your God-given identity is family identity. Number two, seasons of fulfillment. Number three, prophetic insights. Number four, gifts of people who have believed in you. Number five, the trials that have brought the best out of you. Number six, changing identity. Number seven, a God-given name. And number eight, who you are when you're fearless. Okay? Now I'm going to talk briefly about the five steps to find your God-given purpose. We just talked about identity. Now we're going to talk about the five steps to find your God-given purpose in life. Okay? Number one, turn to the Bible. Number two, Pray for direction. Number three, follow the will of God. Number four, understand the promises of God. Number five, living a purpose-driven life. So let's talk about number one, turn to the Bible. God has left us with a wealth of knowledge of the Bible, and that is to help us. And number two, pray for direction. I often meditate and pray each morning. My wife and I, we pray every morning and every night. We'll do it tonight. Uh, we attain peace. We ask for peace, love, and joy in our household and in our marriage. Give us the strength and the energy to carry about the business of the day and the night. Um, and there's so much more that we pray for. We pray not only for ourselves, uh, that our baskets be bountiful, but we also pray for the well-being of others. Um, very often when we're praying, we'll send a text message out to a person. Um, we did that this morning, didn't we? <laughs> Um, as you seek your purpose, understand that each day is, it's a, it's a gift. And ask how to make the most of your life by, by living by faith and not by sight. 
So that's praying for direction. Next, I'm going to talk about follow the will of God. That's number three. For us to live with a God-given, driven purpose, you must first put down this life to gain life. You have to put down this life to gain life. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. You just got to let it. See, God has better plans for us than we can imagine, and he does things which we may not be able to understand. But trust in his will. Through scripture, there are several ways we can live a purpose-driven life. Take the time and reflect. If you feel you desire materialistic possessions or want pride and power, it is futile to focus on temporary pleasures because um, when you're on your deathbed, you can't take anything with you. Besides, it's more than likely your family will be by your side anyways, and that's more important than your material possessions. They love you unconditionally, not because of what you have. Number four, the promises of God. Now that we understand what the will of God is for our life, we must look at the many promises of God when we seek first the kingdom of God. The promises of God. When we talk about the word of God, what does it mean when you give someone a word? You're giving them a promise. So when you see the pastor up here and he holds up his Bible and says, this is the word of God, it's a promise because it's a covenant he has made. And that's why that text, which is 2,000 years old, still holds true. There are thousands and thousands of promises of God, but I want to point out that a few relate specifically to finding your God-given purpose in life so that you can experience a career, and a home life, and a personal life that aligns with your faith. As I said before in Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are the plans for good and not disaster, to give you future and a hope. In Romans 8.28-29, this is Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 29, In all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, which is to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And in James chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father, the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Now, number five, living a purpose-driven life. Once we learn to live a life that's Christ-centered, then we will understand how we can glorify God in all things. In this way, we can lead a purpose-driven uh, life for God. You know, Rick Warren wrote a, a something called The Purpose of Driven Life. And in it, Rick talks about God's intentions to use our talents to do good uh, in the world and explains God's five purposes for us. So here, are, this is what was written. This is uh, from The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. And here are, is what, what is written. Number one, we were playing for God's pleasure. So your first purpose is to offer real worship because... Again, we were planned for God's pleasure. That's number one. Number two, we were formed for God's family. That's the kingdom. So your second purpose is to enjoy real fellowship. That means the kingdom. Okay. Number three, we were created to become like Christ. So your third purpose is to learn real discipleship because that what it is like to be like Christ. Number four, we were shaped for serving God. So your fourth purpose is to practice real ministry. And number five, we were made for a mission. So your fifth purpose is to live out real evangelism. So the five steps to find your 
God-given purpose in life that I just spoke about. Number one, turn to the Bible. Number two, pray for direction. Number three, follow the will of God. Number four, understand the promises of God. And number five, living a purpose-driven life. Let God be the pilot. Not only letting God be the pilot, but let God use others to help you. You have to discern those who are deceptive, manipulative, and selfishness. But because we live in a kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord, we need to let God use others to help you. As you are to help others. That's how it works. So I'll tell you a story. There was a man who who fell in the ocean, not from a parachute. He fell in the ocean and he couldn't swim. When a boat came by, the captain yelled, Do you need help, sir? The man calmly said, No. God will save me. A little later, another boat came by, and a fisherman asked, Hey, do you need help? The man replied again, No, God will save me. Eventually, the man drowned, and he went to heaven. The man asked God, Why didn't you save me? God replied, Fool, I sent you two boats. So tonight, what we have talked about, there were nine things that I chatted with you about today. The nine things are, number one, the testimony about identity and purpose in life. Number two, let God control your wiggle direction and pull you up. Number three, learn who Yahweh is. Number four, the signs of unclear identity in life, to know what they are. Number five, what your God-given identity gives you. Number six, clues to your God-given identity. Number seven, God-given purpose in life. Number eight, how to let God be the pilot in your life. Number nine, the identity is your, your identity is your God-given purpose. Now, I'm just going to share with you, I know I said a lot today. This was a lot of stuff that I shared, okay? So for those that are on Facebook at TRC413, and those who go on YouTube, ResCent Spring, um, the, this video that was just shown here, and also the one that I sent to Europe yesterday, it's there. I advise you, I suggest perhaps, maybe that's a better word, to study it, to go through it again. It's a lot of information. What we do here at the, the Bravehearted Men's Ministry is we put focus on the way men think. And unfortunately, what we see in our churches across America is that men have rejected God. I'm not afraid to say that. And, and the reason why I know that is I used to be like that. So I can say that. Okay, so I, I've been there. I've been here. So I know the difference. So I'm, I'm in a position. I have the authority to be able to say that men reject God. Okay, they may not say it. That's okay. They don't have to say it. I'll say it for them. Men reject God. So what we have given today are the tools for the Christ-minded men who can help those to bring us back. So what we have as a mission at the Bravehearted Ministry is to educate people. It's, it's not only to edify ourselves, but to give us the resources so that we can shine as a beacon. My wife and I, as we were praying this morning, our conversation was one of the best ministries that you can have is the ministry by being an example. And so you be that example and continue with that.
okay? Uh, my name is David Ewan from the Bravehearted Men's Ministry with Pastors Jose and Melly Martinez. I bless you all. I thank you all for coming. And I look forward to seeing you on Sunday and again uh, Sunday at noon and Wednesday at 7 p.m. My name is David Ewan, and this is the Resurrection Center. Jesus, right there where you are, just lift up your hands and let us just give God thanks for what he's doing with us. I know that when we worship God, God is faithful to impartate in us a strength that it's unprecedented. And what I mean by that, something that rejuvenates your heart rejuvenates your soul and allows you to continue to press forward even though sometimes you just want to give up. So we just want to thank you, God, for giving us this opportunity of worshiping you in spirit and truth. So lift up your hands right there, man, and begin to worship God. Father, we give you glory. We give you honor. We ask you for forgiveness, Lord, if we have failed you in ways that we never even thought were ways that disown, Father, dear God, who you are. But here we are, Father, dear God, before you, thanking you, worshiping your holy name, God, because without you, Father, dear God, we are nothing. Father, I thank you for this opportunity that we are able to stop here as men in the pit stop, Father, dear God. Refresh, Father, dear God. Fresh anointing oil pouring over us, Father, dear God, so that we can continue this race, oh God. Father, right now we thank you, Father, dear God, that you didn't give up on us, that you didn't walk out on us, that you patiently, Father, dear God, work with us day in and day out.